Welcome to the second in our series of coronavirus episodes of Scientific American Science Talk, posted on March 14th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. And as in our first episode, I'll be throwing it over to W. Wade Gibbs. He's a contributing editor for Scientific American based in Seattle. He also works as a scientific editor at Intellectual Ventures. For this edition, Gibbs spoke with a pediatric infectious disease expert about work on new vaccines and drugs for COVID-19 and the role that children play in disease transmission. Gibbs also talked with the head of infection control for one of the country's largest networks of cancer centers about the special steps being taken to protect cancer patients and others whose immune systems aren't functioning at full strength and who suddenly find themselves at increased risk. First, Gibbs brings us up to date on life in the hot zone these last few days. Albert Einstein discovered that if you were to get in a spaceship, travel to the center of the Milky Way, and spiral into the giant black hole at the heart of our galaxy, time would slow down for you, while, from your perspective, everything back on Earth would move at super speed. That's what it felt like the past few days here in my hometown of Kirkland, Washington, at the heart of America's swirling struggle with the coronavirus pandemic. Changes to daily life have been coming so fast, our heads are spinning. When we recorded our previous episode on Monday, just one school district near us had closed. Our schools in Kirkland remained open. We were still talking about whether the Seattle Sounders would play their home game in the stadium on Saturday. Just three days later, as I record this on Thursday, March 12th, our calendars have been denuded. Our daily routines upended. There was no school in Kirkland today. Some of our most famous restaurants and some of our Starbucks have closed their doors. And forget the Sounders game. All professional soccer, basketball, and hockey games nationwide have been suspended. I even had to cancel my plans to invite buddies over for poker this Friday in view of their age or health issues. Yesterday, our governor, Jay Inslee, handed down a stunning edict. It is clear that our state needs a more vigorous and more comprehensive and more aggressive position if we are going to slow the spread of this epidemic. So starting today, uh, I am ordering ordering pursuant to my emergency powers that certain events in King, Snohomish, and Pierce County with more than 250 people are prohibited by order of the governor. These events that are prohibited are gatherings for social, recreational, spiritual, and other matters, including but not limited to community, civic, public, leisure, faith-based, or sporting events, parades, concerts, festivals, conventions, fundraisers, and similar activities of that dimension are prohibited as we go forward. Our jaws dropped again as the governor made a new announcement. Today I make the very uh, difficult decision to order closures of schools in Snohomish, King, and Pierce counties. This includes public and private K-12 schools. The first possible weekday back will be April 27th. This six-week closure is not a decision made lightly. We have reached a tipping point where the spread of this virus demands that we take action. Health professionals have told us that closing schools could create a significant cut in the peak number of ultimate infections. And closing school districts will help slow the transmission of this dangerous virus. I thought, wow, that's over half a million kids out of school for six weeks or more. But during the course of the day, 
seven states across the country closed all of their schools. Unlike Washington's six-week hiatus, most other states have shuttered schools for two to four weeks. But on Friday morning, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned that, according to their models and the experience of other countries, closures of four weeks or less do not slow the spread of the infection or the rate of hospital admissions. The CDC says that much longer closures of eight weeks to 20 weeks can have a bigger impact on viral transmission, but not as much as frequent handwashing and home isolation of the sick and medically fragile can do. And it's worth noting the words Governor Inslee chose to use, slowing transmission of the virus, not stopping it, cutting the peak number of infections, not necessarily the total number who will eventually be infected. That's the difference between an outbreak and a pandemic. Outbreaks can be contained, They fizzle out. Pandemics ricochet around the globe until so many people have immunity that the virus can no longer find anyone else to infect. We're now at the end of the beginning of this pandemic in America. In this episode, I'm going to focus on what the beginning of the end might look like. So let's talk about immunity. Today, few of us have any immunity to this new virus. Our bodies haven't seen it before. And that's why when epidemiologists here in Seattle did the math, they came up with some pretty grim numbers, which they released in a working paper on Tuesday. Their models project that by April 7th, the two most affected counties in Washington state will likely have thousands to tens of thousands of new COVID-19 infections. The numbers depend heavily on how effective the new bans on gatherings and the school closures are in slowing the transmission of the virus. Some people are immune. Those are the people who caught COVID-19 and have already recovered. Because the symptoms can be quite mild, there are actually many more people walking around who are already immune than we realize. Now, there are at least two ways people could eventually gain immunity without catching the disease. One would be to get vaccinated. Another would be to get an injection of antibodies against the virus, kind of like a booster shot. On Tuesday, I went over to Seattle Children's Hospital to speak with one of their leading infectious disease experts about work in progress on those two fronts. And we also talked about another question crucial to the end game for this pandemic which is, how fast is this coronavirus mutating? Do we need to worry about it essentially becoming a second flu, a disease that continually evolves and returns every year in some slightly new form? My name is Janet England, MD. I'm a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, University of Washington, and Seattle Children's Hospital in Seattle, Washington. England contrasted the situation we are in today with what happened during the last pandemic 11 years ago when H1N1 influenza, the so-called swine flu, swept around the globe, sickening millions of children and killing hundreds of thousands. The difference is that with flu, we really had a vaccine. What's going on now is different, and many people appreciate that. We aren't even close to a vaccine, although vaccine trials are starting. But we've never had a coronavirus vaccine, and it's highly likely the first, the first or second might not work. We had drugs for flu. We had vaccines for flu. We don't have drugs. We don't have vaccines. And we're working on them. The the vaccine trials are starting very soon, I hear. The drug trials are already underway. But we still don't know. And, And this not knowing, I think, is driving the anxiety. When vaccines are available in a year or two, she says, they will have been tested on and approved for adults, not children. A vaccine would teach your immune system to make antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. But another, possibly faster approach, is to make those antibodies in big bioreactors and then give them directly to people as injections. 
I know that there's also work on monoclonal antibodies, which could be manufactured at potentially a big volume, which could be used potentially as a way to prevent people from getting disease. And, and that makes me excited because then we could use a preventative approach to our patients who have a poor immune system or to some of our people with underlying lung disease who are being treated with steroids or even to our littlest babies who we don't think will get sick, but we don't know, and they might not respond well to vaccines. It's hard to make effective vaccines and antibody shots against influenza because the flu virus is such a moving target. It keeps changing shape. But England, who is an expert on the four human coronaviruses that are constantly circulating in the population and cause the common cold, says that this novel coronavirus seems to evolve very slowly, even though it causes more severe illness. We think probably the immunity will last you a long time. We have actually investigated the mutation rate of coronavirus in some of our immunocompromised patients. One of my colleagues, Dr. Chikaro Gimi, with work with um, Dr. Alex Greninger here at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center, we have looked at some of our patients over time who've shed coronavirus for a long time, it, as, in, as in weeks or even months, and, and we have shown that really the coronavirus doesn't mutate very much. It's going to be better than flu. Lots of vaccines we have now last, last many, many years. So I think that's what we're hoping for. So yay, that's a win for the home team. But between here and there, we'll need to figure out when it's safe to reopen schools. And that means understanding better whether school-aged children are catching the virus and probably transmitting it for a while, but then becoming immune to it. One way to study that, it would seem, would be to use some of these tests that are now just becoming available to do a, some sort of a screening study in a, I don't know, a school or some sort of collection of kids maybe here in the hospital just to get a sense of how prevalent it is within the community among asymptomatic children. Is that it's being great contemplated? Idea. Oh, it's, it's being contemplated. It's being acted upon. I hope it will be, some of that will be starting in the very near future, at least in the Seattle area, yes. But you're absolutely right. We need to be doing a better job of figuring out what's going on in the community. We don't have enough tests right now in the United States to do that, although it's getting better. So, getting back to the beginning of the end. We will know it's in sight when the number of new cases in each part of the U.S. peaks and then gradually shrinks, as has now happened in China and South Korea. All of these closures and cancellations are intended to do two things. First, to try to hold down that peak, those days and weeks when more people are heading to the hospital with life-threatening illness than our intensive care units and medical staff can handle, as has happened in China and now is happening in many parts of Italy and Iran. And second, to protect the millions of Americans in fragile health from this virus until a vaccine or effective drugs are available. Cancer patients can be highly vulnerable to a disease like COVID-19. So on Tuesday, I checked in with Steve Pergam, the Director of Infection Prevention at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, to see what measures his large network of clinics is taking to safeguard the health of the 100,000 cancer patients they treat every year. He said they're now screening everyone who arrives at a treatment center before they even enter the building. They've set up a local testing center to test employees who have symptoms or think they may have been exposed. And they've been making plans for how to adapt if the situation gets really hairy. What does cancer care look like if hospitals are full? We're starting to think about um, patients that don't need acute care, um, those who could delay their therapies um, to be pushed out a little further. We've looked at patients who come for screening visits or who are coming for survivorship appointments um, to try to 
not have them come to delay those appointments, to not have as many people coming into the center. And then there's the tough question of when it becomes too risky to offer bone marrow transplants, which can be life-saving, but also involve a period of pretty severe immunosuppression. Is it feasible that at some point in time, um, transplant may be challenging, um, that we may not be able to offer that to patients for a period of time? Um, the hard part is that I, I'm fairly con convinced that we're not going to be the only site in the country that's dealing with this. And so I can't just say, well, we should send them someplace else to go through therapy. These disruptions to daily life are a colossal inconvenience. But the point is to stop unnecessarily putting millions of people at risk of ending up in intensive care or in the cemetery. And so a lot of our community members need to think about this, is they may not directly interact with a cancer patient one-on-one. -on -one. They might in the community because many of them are in our communities. But they also may interact with somebody who is um, a caregiver. And that caregiver may be going out to get laundry. They may be going out to get food or medications. And so if you are sick in, in the community, you need to avoid coming into common places as much as you can because all of these interactions increase risk. That's it for this update from Ground Zero in America's coronavirus epidemic. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Wade Gibbs. <laughs>